Hey everyone, you're listening to the Her Head in Films podcast. I'm your host, my name is Caitlin, and I created this podcast as a way to talk about the films that I watch. I live in a rural area. It's pretty difficult to connect to other film lovers, um, especially if you like uh, films that are not mainstream, if you like foreign films and uh, international cinema independent cinema, classic cinema. So I created this podcast so that I could talk about those films. If you're new to the podcast, the story behind the title is that I sent an email a a few years ago to a friend and I was uh, sort of in this frenzy, this film frenzy, and I was watching a lot of movies and I wrote that my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. So that's how um, that phrase was born, and it sort of became an inside joke. And then when I was starting to think about making the podcast and thinking about, um, you know, a good title for it, I came back to that phrase, Her Head in Films, because it really does describe me much of the time. I always have my head in films. Today's episode is dedicated to the 1990 documentary, Paris is Burning. Many of you may have already seen it. I had not, and I just watched it last night. Uh, Today is February 2nd, 2017, so I watched it last night. It was streaming on Netflix for a while, and then it left, and then it came back. And so when I saw that it had come back, I felt like, well, this is as good a time as any to watch it. It's been a really stressful week. I mean, it's only been Donald Trump's second week in office, and... We already are just sliding towards a fascist state here in the United States. It's very disturbing what's happening. You can see the previous episode to this podcast. I took a break from films, and I really wanted to talk about the political situation in the United States under Donald Trump as our president, which I really can't believe I'm saying, you know, that a reality TV star and an asshole, you know, is our president. So, um... But um, a rumor has been spreading. Well, it's not really a rumor. Um, There have been pieces written about it that his administration is thinking about um, basically enshrining discrimination, you know, into our country again by passing some kind of religious freedoms uh, executive order. It hasn't been done yet, but it could be really devastating to the LGBT community. And so it seems very fitting to watch Paris is Burning, um, at this time when when we see marginalized communities really being um, threatened again um, and losing protections that have been gained over the past few years. So Paris is Burning, as I said, it, it came out in 1990, but it was filmed throughout the 1980s, probably the mid to late 1980s. It's a film by Jenny Livingston, and... Um, It's about the drag balls, um, the balls in New York City um, in the late 1980s. And at these balls, uh, people of the LGBT community, mainly African American and Latino uh, men, would gather. And at the balls, um, they would perform. Uh, There would be different categories. some were more feminine, um, 
where women where the men would dress up as women but there were also categories for uh, just dressing as an executive for instance so in a three-piece suit or there was like a military category so you know think of like a pageant kind of um, but with the LGBT community and um, these balls had actually been going on for decades from what I've read but Paris is Burning was I guess the first documentary the first film to uh, actually film the balls and um, and film what happened uh, there. The documentary, it shows scenes from these balls and then it's interspersed with interviews with individual, uh, individual people who uh, are involved in the balls. So there are different interviews with people, um, Pepper, LaBeja, Dor Dorian, Corey, Angie Extravaganza, Venus Extravaganza, Willie Ninja, who was a choreographer, Octavia St. Laurent. So um, the, those are sort of the principal people who are in the documentary. And um, we see some of, we see them perform at the balls. And then we also, the, I really liked the interview portions. It was very poignant. They talk about their lives, they talk about the difficulties of growing up gay or transgender. Um, they talk about, you know, the harsh realities that they had to endure. So Paris is Burning is really famous for sort of bringing gay, a gay subculture into the mainstream. And it actually gave birth to a lot of, um, to a lot of, I guess, uh, phrases, a lot of terminology. I was attracted to Paris's Burning because I, a few years ago, I got really interested in RuPaul's Drag Race, which is a reality competition on the Logo Network hosted by the drag queen um, RuPaul. And I started watching it and I just fell in love with that show. Um, up until that point, I hadn't really been interested in drag queens. I didn't really know much about them, um, even though I was a women's and gender studies major in college where we talked about gender and we talked about Judith Butler and, you know, gender is drag, which I know a lot of people don't necessarily agree with, you know, gender is much more complex than just putting on a particular outfit, you know, you don't just sort of take gender on and off, you know, I, I definitely am aware of that. Um, but I wasn't, I wasn't that interested in, in drag culture or anything. And then I started watching RuPaul's Drag Race and I was really compelled by it. And, um, I really enjoyed it and I thought it was funny. I thought it was fun. I thought it was glamorous. I thought it was, um, subversive in the way that it did deconstruct gender and it did deconstruct femininity and, um, and exaggerated femininity. I also loved um, the references that you'll often see to old Hollywood stars or even Grey Gardens. Um, Jinx Monsoon did a really famous uh, snatch game performance where um, where she performed as Little Edie and I fell in love with that as well because um, I love old Hollywood and I you know I, I love all of that stuff. I love Grey Gardens. So I've just been a huge fan of RuPaul's Drag Race and of RuPaul. Um, he's 
very outspoken about LGBT rights and, and causes and issues. And um, also someone who really advocates loving yourself and um, and being who you are. And so I liked that positive message as well. So RuPaul's Drag Race actually really takes a lot from Paris's burning. Um, they use the term realness a lot, you know, like um, like a, she's serving some kind of realness. I'm sure some of you have seen that. And that comes from Paris's burning. Um, it was interesting, voguing, I, I didn't even know vogue, voguing was from Paris's burning or that it came from a gay subculture. But, um, you know, Madonna did a song in 1990 called Vogue. It's, it's one of her most famous hits. And she actually learned about voguing through these balls. I guess she attended one or, or she came to learn about it somehow. I mean, a lot of people have been um, critical of that, that she sort of stole something from the gay underground, um, from gay culture, and, and used it for her own benefit and profit. And, um, and there's, and within the, the community that Paris is burning documents, there's, there's these different communities, but they call themselves houses. So there's the house of, um, the, like there's the house of extravaganza. That's a big one. And these houses are where, um, usually there will be like a matriarch of the house. So for the extravaganza house, the matriarch was Angie, Angie extravaganza. And she would take under her wing other, you know, gay and transgender uh, people of color and youth. And it would sort of become like a home for them. And um, and many of them would, perf and you, well, to get into the house, I think you had to perform at these, uh, these balls, these drag balls. Um, so you saw how um, they were trying to create communities. Um, because many of them, and they talk about it in the documentary, were very estranged from their families because they were gay or transgender. So um, I really, I do recommend watching the film. It's a fascinating document, really. It, it records a certain time in history, which is New York City in the late 1980s. It um, records a marginalized group, you know, young Latino and African-American queer youth and um, who even today we don't see much about. And I was thinking recently about the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando. And I was thinking about how we don't really hear anything about it anymore. We don't hear about the victims. We don't hear about their families. and. I just, I recently watched a documentary called Newtown, which is about the Sandy Hook uh, shooting. Um, and I was thinking about how the families from Newtown, there are certain ones who are very public about their grief. Um, you may have seen some of them, like Francine Wheeler, she lost her son Ben Wheeler, or um, the Bardens, or the Hockley family. Um, they have the Sandy Hook promise. And, um, you know, they're very. You, you see them, you see them in different documentaries and stuff about gun violence because they advocate, you know, for common sense gun reform. But I was just thinking about how with the Orlando shooting, I mean, it is the deadliest mass shooting in U.S. history, but I don't really know the names of any of the victims and I don't know any of the families. And 
Um, the victims were predominantly queer and people of color, Latin people, uh, Latino people, and, um, you know, gay and transgender. And I, I don't hear anything about it. And obviously you see how these mass shootings, the, who gets grieved? It goes back to the Judith Butler question, you know, what life is grievable? And for hundreds of years, we've decided that the lives of people of color is not grievable that um it's their lives do not matter and so paris is burning is a rare film um that sort of gives us insight into um a certain subculture that's often marginalized and overlooked and invisible you know and um and thankfully rupaul's drag race has sort of brought renewed attention to drag culture and to the history of uh, drag culture i watched a documentary probably a few years ago about divine who was in a lot of films by john waters and i thought it was really interesting and um so i have become more interested in in drag culture and um i mean i'm certainly by no means an expert so but the film really captures a lot of that and um it shows the difficult realities of of people's lives the participants are um very vulnerable and very open about what they've gone through in their lives and um i think it's pepper labasia that talks about how you know his mother couldn't really handle that he wanted to be a woman or he wanted to be a drag queen and and uh, she would go in and, and any time LaBeja was able to, um, you know, get a dress or collect dresses, she, the mother would go in and rip up the dresses and get rid of them. Um, most of, I mean, the people in this film are living in poverty. You know, they are struggling to survive in New York City, which is, you know, a very difficult place to live in terms of, you know, uh, things are much more expensive in New York City and you know it's it's a tough place to survive I would imagine I've never lived there or been there um, but they are queer they are transgender so they have a very difficult experience um, there is a, um, a participant called Venus extravaganza and um, She's very, she's light-skinned, she's blonde. Um, I thought she was very pretty, actually. And she came off like a very sweet person. And um, at the end of the film, uh, we do find out that she was murdered. Um, her body was found underneath a hotel bed. And um, she had been strangled. And um, it underscores a few things. At first it underscores the violence against trans women that is perpetrated even to this day. Especially trans women of color have much higher rates of murder. Um, and it also underscores um, how trans women are often... it can be difficult for them to find a job, you know, a mainstream regular job. And, and sometimes they are um, they have to make the difficult decision to engage in sex work or to engage in, in, in work that is dangerous and that can lead to violence. And you do see that in the murder of Venus. And I've still been thinking about Venus because I found her 
the portions that were with her, her interviews, I just found them to be so moving because she talks about her dreams. She talks about how she wants to get married. She wants to have um, like financial security. She wants to be spoiled. You know, she just wants a regular life like most people. She doesn't want to struggle. She doesn't want to have to survive all the time. She and she's so little. I mean, she's like this little this little person, this little woman, and to think of someone doing violence to her and her murder is still unsolved. We we have no idea who murdered her. It just and it's interesting because in the documentary she recounts of a, 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 a near violent incident where she was with a man and he didn't know that she was transgender and he said something like I should kill you and she had to jump out of a window to get away from him so she was aware of the violence that could be inflicted on her and I just thought about like what must it have been like to be that vulnerable to know that your life could be ended by someone simply because of who you are and how you exist and I just I find myself still thinking about her just I mean I watched the film yesterday and I was just thinking about it today and it just like hurt it just to know that someone thought that was okay that they could kill her you know because of the homophobia and the toxic mascu masculinity in our culture it just hurt me like <laughs> when you see the interviews with the different participants you know especially for me Venus I really connected to Venus I really loved Octavia St. Laurent I really connected to her as well her interview portions and Dorian Corey Dorian Corey is sort of she has a she's sort of like the chorus I guess throughout the film and she continually is weaved through talking about different things mm -hmm because she's an older queen. She's an older drag queen, so she comes from the old school and she talks about how the new school is much more um, consumerist, is much more obsessed with um, uh, looking like models and buying um, name brand clothes. Whereas she talks about how when she was up and coming, you created your own costumes and you, you did that. and. Um, and so she talks a lot about race and class and, and different things throughout the film. Those were the ones that I really connected to and and um and um but it it made very clear the violence that um that the different participants have to deal with uh because they are queer and and these balls represent a reprieve from from the real world they represent this space where you can go and you can be you can be gay you can be transgender you can be and it's okay i think there's like this interview that that uh, livingston does with people on the street who are just talking about how the balls represent this space where they can freely be queer and it's okay it's it's not abnormal, it's not looked down upon, you know, it's not shameful. It's celebrated. And, um, and so you do get that sense of those balls. Um, the interviews were, um, 
were so powerful because the different participants, especially Venus, Octavia, they really talked about their dreams. They really talked about how they wanted to be famous. They wanted to be rich. They they wanted to be somebody. And uh, Willie Ninja talks about that too. Willie Ninja uh, was probably the most successful of all the participants because he went on to do some choreography work and um, and he actually worked with a lot of people. And um, he wanted to be famous as well. They all want to be famous. That's, that's a big thread among all of them. And um, they want their names to be known. And I think when you are marginalized and when you feel so worthless and you feel so inferior and so invisible, I think there is this desire in you to be known that you want people to want to know you and you want to be known in the world. And I mean, I have felt that myself, you know, that I wish I could be a famous writer, you know, um, like I want, I want people to know my name and I want to matter and I want to be special, you know, I mean, who, who really doesn't want to feel like that? I mean, I think all of us do. And coming from poverty myself, I would love to have lots of money and I would love to not have to struggle and struggle and struggle every day. And so I think when they're expressing those dreams, I think it's really about just wanting to feel like you matter and wanting to feel like you've had some kind of impact on the world and wanting to have material comfort, you know, wanting to be secure and, and financially stable, especially if you come from a background of poverty or deprivation where you've never had those things. So I really related to everything that they were saying about that and and um, it was just very poignant, those interviews. Um, as strong as the documentary is, I'm just going to take a sip of water. as you know sort of iconic and, and legendary as the film is it, it it does have its um critics and one of the most vocal has probably been bell hooks um in a book i think it's called black looks um hooks did um critique the film shortly after it was released she has a few a few central issues with the film the first is um, and I think it's important to talk about these critiques and I found myself seeing some of Hooks's points and definitely understanding where she comes from and I think that she does bring up some important issues that we should think about and we should talk about. So the first one is the fact that Jenny Livingston, who's the director, is white and um, Hooks has issues with that. Um, because when a director is white and when they're going into communities of color, it can it can sort of turn the film into an ethnographic uh, exercise where it's like, oh, let's let's go into this area and let me observe these people and um, and she feels like we need to interrogate Livingston's whiteness because Livingston being white 
means that she makes certain decisions when she puts the film together because she is coming from a stance and a perspective of whiteness. Yes, she is queer. Livingston is, I think, a lesbian. She does uh, identify as a queer woman. But her race still puts her at a certain, um, in a certain position. And she makes choices from that position. And Hooks feels that, um, the, the, the film turns black and Latino gay culture into a spectacle. And, um, Hooks is also disturbed by the way that the participants in the film, the people that I've mentioned like Venus and Octavia, she's very disturbed by the way that they glorify and centralize white womanhood as as the pinnacle of life. Like especially Octavia and Venus, they talk about how they wish they were white women and that they um, would like to be treated like white women, spoiled like white women, and um, and Hooks has issues with that, and um, and with the consumerism and the the capitalism, you know, uh, that the participants talk about because they talk about wanting to be rich, they talk about wanting to be um, famous and have lots of money. And that is tied to white womanhood and their desire for whiteness when they're not white. You know, they're, they are people of color and a women of color. And um, Hooks is, a, is, a, is disturbed by that. And um, so let me see. I have a few quotes. Yeah. Hooks talks about going to the theater and watching the film and and talks about her reaction to the film as opposed to the reaction of the white people in the audience at the movie theater. She says, watching the film with a black woman friend, we were disturbed by the extent to which white folks around us were entertained and pleasured by scenes we viewed as sad and at, time, and at times tragic. Often individuals laughed at personal testimony about hardship, pain, loneliness. Several times I yelled out in the dark, why, what is so funny about this scene? Why are you laughing? The laughter was never innocent. Instead, it undermined the seriousness of the film, keeping it always on the level of spectacle. And that's what Hooks is talking about, is that Livingston, as a white woman, she made certain decisions and those decisions appealed to white audiences. So there is a difference between the way Hooks is watching the film and the way white people are watching the film. And in, and in reducing black culture to spectacle, it brings out a certain reaction from white audiences. And that's what Hooks is disturbed by. And, um, See, there's more. She talks about the white audience again, the white. Really, she's talking about the white gaze and about the way white people watch this film. 
And she says, watching Paris is burning, I began to think that the many yuppie-looking, straight-acting, pushy, predominantly white folks in the audience were there because the film in no way interrogates whiteness. These folks left the film saying it was amazing, marvelous, incredibly funny, worthy of statements like, didn't you just love it? And no, I didn't just love it, for in many ways the film was a graphic documentary portrait of the way in which colonized black people, in this case black gay brothers, some of whom were drag queens, worship at the throne of whiteness. Even when such worship demands that we live in perpetual self-hate, steal, lie, go hungry, and even die in its pursuit. The we evoked here is all of us, black people, people of color, who are daily bombarded by a powerful colonizing whiteness that seduces us away from ourselves, that negates that there is beauty to be found in any form of blackness that is not imitation whiteness. So Hooks is saying, why do white audiences react the way they do to this film? Because the film doesn't require anything from white audiences. It doesn't challenge the white gaze. It doesn't challenge white viewers to think about how the lives of gay and transgender people of color are produced. You know, why is it that the LG the, that these LGBT um, Q people, why is it that they're living in poverty? Why is it that they dream of rich, of being rich and being famous? Well, because their daily realities are so dire. And why, why is it that Venus is being murdered in a hotel room? Because of racism and because of uh, homophobia and because of uh, trans misogyny and the hatred or transphobia, hatred against transgender people. But does the film ask a white audience to think about that or a cisgender audience to think about that? And so I think that's a valid critique. I really do. I even started to criticize my own pleasure when I watched the film. I was thinking about how I was sort of enjoying the spectacle in front of me, wasn't I? You know, I loved watching the balls and loved watching them pose and vogue and and all these things and I started to think you know am I am I engaging in that in that spectatorship am I turning their lives into spectacles and so I'm not saying I have all the answers I'm not saying that everything Hook says is is right or that I agree with all of it but I certainly understand her viewpoint and what she is saying and um and I think any time a director is white and they take up a subject of people of color or communities of color, we do have to be critical of that. And we do have to think that through and think about, well, what choices are they making in this documentary? What stereotypes are they maybe reproducing? So to act like Livingston is neutral or that she's not or that her whiteness doesn't matter is very wrong. It does matter. And she says, what else does she write? And Hooks is kind of disturbed by Livingston's interviews and the comments that she says. She says, Livingston's comments about Paris is burning do not convey serious thought about either the political and aesthetic implications of her choice 
as a white woman focusing on an aspect of black life and culture, or the way racism might shape and inform how she would interpret black experience on the screen. So I think we have to keep in mind that when we're watching Paris is Burning, we are watching something that is shaped and informed, as Hooks writes, by the white gaze, by a white woman. That the vision of this black experience or the vision of this of this of these communities of color uh, of these trans lives and these um, Latino and black lives that what we are getting in this film and in that frame is Livingston's viewpoint is Livingston's idea of these communities of her decisions of what to include what to edit out, what to keep in, how to arrange the material, because these films don't come out of nowhere. They don't come fully formed. There are ideologies behind them. There are people with biases. There are people with racism. People, and it may not be explicit. It may, it can be implicit. There is a bias. Every director has a bias. Every director has a certain perspective and a certain viewpoint, and there are limitations to that viewpoint. But when we look at Paris is Burning, we have to remember that the vision of this culture, of these, of these drag balls in New York City in the 1980s, is shaped and created from a certain perspective, and that perspective is Jenny Livingston's. And if it was from the perspective of a black woman or a black man, if they had been the director, then we would have a different film, wouldn't we? And so, as much as I really loved Paris is Burning, I understand those critiques. And the participants themselves had this, some similar critiques. And so I wanted to go in next, I wanted to talk about the controversy surrounding the documentary after it gained notoriety and became very famous. Uh, some of the participants wanted a portion of the profits that came from the film. Um, I think Livingston, when she was interviewing them, she maybe gave them a few hundred dollars. And they knowingly participated in the documentary and they did sign release forms. But once the film became very famous and they realized that Livingston was going to reap rewards from it, and she certainly has, you know, I mean, this film is a cult film. It's a classic film. It was chosen by the, um, what is it, the National Film Registry. Yeah, the National Film Registry by the Library of Congress as, as a film that's going to be preserved um, for all time. It's considered an important part of American you know, cinematic history, when they started to see that, they started to feel used and exploited by Livingston. And they started to see that she was profiting off of them. And the film did not, um, it didn't profit, it didn't, um, what's the word? Oh God, my mind's going blank. It didn't make that much money. It made about $4 million, which for a documentary probably is a lot. And it was only made for half a million. But it's not like Livingston made tens of millions of dollars off this film, you know. But I definitely see where the participants are coming from and that some of them, like, I think Willie Ninja and um, 
some some different participants did want um, a cut. They did want some money. And Livingston, in the end, she did divide about $55,000 among the among about a dozen, more than a dozen participants. I think it was 13 people that she split the money among, but it was definitely more than a dozen. And I think this raises issues, you know, uh, many of the participants in the film talked about how they wanted to be rich, they wanted to be famous, and um, I can see how when they saw that the film was going to become really successful and do well, I can see how after the fact they kind of felt like, well, you know, we were part of this, we were part of this film, and, um, you know, we should be rewarded for it, and, and, um, they definitely got a, a measure of fame and notoriety from it, but maybe not as much as they had hoped or or expected. So once again, I mean, I think that comes back to just thinking about documentaries in general. And when you think about a documentarian profiting from the lives that they record, you know, what is what is the obligation? What is the responsibility? for the director, you know, because you are using people's lives. You are, in a way, exploiting their lives. You're putting them on camera, but at the same time, the people have agreed to it. So it's a mutual relationship, in a way. But I, myself, am, uncom am uncomfortable with sort of the power differentiation there that, you know, the person that directs the film sort of has all the power. And the people who give their stories and talk about their lives, they don't have the same measure of power. They are sort of at the mercy of the documentary maker. And so um, I thought that was interesting that some of the participants wanted money and, and um, that they felt like they were sort of um, deprived of what they deserved because there would be no film without the participants would there there wouldn't be a film without venus extravaganza and angie extravaganza and dorian corey and pepper labasia and willie ninja you know the film wouldn't exist without the participants in it so um you know when it comes to a marginalized community and you're going to turn your camera on it and you want to hear their stories, well, what is your obligation to this group of people that you are, in a sense, using, you know? You, you have that power, and so it's, it's up to each person to sort of decide how they feel about that, you know? But I just wanted to make you aware of it, that there was this payout, and, um, you know, I guess Livingston was doing the best she could, or what she thought was the right thing um, by giving them, you know, some money. It It's tough because all the participants in this film, for the most part, are dead. And they lived very difficult lives, for the most part. And almost all of them died due to AIDS. Um, Pepper LaBeja died in 2003 of a heart attack. Dorian Corey died in 1993 from AIDS-related complications. Angie Extravaganza died in 1993 due to AIDS-related liver disease. Venus Extravaganza, as you know, was murdered in 1988. Willie Ninja died in 2006 from AIDS-related heart failure. And Octavia St. Laurent died in 2009 from cancer. Many of them died young. 
Many of them died from AIDS. Many of them died in poverty, you know, without much money. And it's just odd to think that this film that they were in has become so famous and so well known for the most part. And yet the people in it did not really reap the rewards of that success, you know. That while Livingston, you know, is still a director, um, I don't think she's made a film since Paris is Burning, though. But I imagine she has a decent life, you know, I don't, I wouldn't imagine that she's living in poverty or anything. Um, you know, she has gone on and, and continued her life, whereas the people that she filmed died in often tragic ways and um and struggled and i'm not saying that's livingston's fault you know but it it's ironic i guess and i think it's a bit tragic you know that we watch this film and we see these people and most of them are dead and most of them died in poverty and most of them vocalized their dreams and their desires and then you realize well none of that came true for them none of it it's very sad and um so for me the film is it's a powerful document of how marginalized communities create solidarity with each other how they create families, um, they take in one another, they support one another, they love each other um, outside of the mainstream. They are rejected from the mainstream, they are rejected from their biological families, but they find each other and they come together and they try to give one another love and support and they do what they can for each other. And um, community is very important, and that's what these balls are about. It's about people coming together and, yes, competing. Yes, maybe throwing some, some shade. That's another word that comes from Paris is Burning that a lot of y'all probably know, you know, throwing shade. Um, but I just thought it was very moving, the way they formed these sort of alternative families. Um... I thought that was important, you know, especially in this political moment where things are very difficult and the marginalized are under attack. It's important to have communities. Nowadays, there's a lot of communities online, whereas back then it was, you know, those physical communities in the ballrooms and on the streets. And, um, like, there are these lovely scenes of just, um, you know, I've never been to New York, so I don't know the full terminology, but, um, where it's like sunset and, and people are just sort of sitting by the water and um, just hanging out and just talking and listening to music. And I thought it was really beautiful. New York looked really beautiful in the 1980s. Um, it sort of captures New York during that time period and it's just very beautiful. And, and um, I don't... I agree with a lot of what Hooks writes, but at the same time, to reduce this film just to Jenny Livingston's whiteness, or to just say, well, because she's white, the film, uh, the film may have problematic aspects to it. 
But at the end of the day, what makes this film so powerful is beyond Jenny Livingston. What makes the film powerful are the participants, are Pepper LaBeja, Dorian Corey, Angie Extravaganza, Venus Extravaganza, Willie Ninja, Octavia St. Laurent. They are the heart of the film. And they do speak. And they do talk about their lives. So it's important to interrogate Livingston's subjectivity and her her racial bias and the decisions that she makes but at the same time like I said the heart of the film are, are these men and these women and telling their stories and performing at the balls and I know to Hooks it, it becomes spectacle and I get that you know and I understand that but these balls were more than just spectacle to the people who participated in it. For them, it's an alternative space. It's a space where they gather. It's a space where they laugh. It's a space where they compete. It's a space where they bond. It's a space where they have glamour and fantasy and beauty. And um, it's a space of freedom for them. I, I get that sense. It's a space where they are free to to be outrageous or to dress like an executive in a three-piece suit or to dress in lots of diamonds and, and outrageous costumes. Um, and maybe it is a spectacle, but to them it's something meaningful. And, and a white audience may laugh at it, a white audience may denigrate it, just like white people laugh and denigrate at a lot of things, unfortunately. But that doesn't mean that just because a white person laughs at it or devalues it, it doesn't mean that it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that it doesn't have value to the people that participate in it and the people who get something out of it, if that makes sense. So... I did like the film, even though I see the critiques and I see the imperfections and I see those power differentials and um, I see it. I see all that, absolutely. And of course, I am a white spectator. I am a white viewer. So I come at it from that perspective as well, which I'm aware of. And yes, the participants talk about white womanhood as what they aspire to. But, but wouldn't they? I mean, they live in a culture that continuously and relentlessly um, glorifies white women. And so, yes, white women represent something to them. They represent power. They represent privilege. They represent, you know, financial security and beauty and, priv and opportunity and advantages. Um, and so I think it kind of makes sense that, you know, if you're someone who's never had those things that you you would aspire to that you know like Octavia Saint Laurent she um she really loves a white model um I've forgotten her name though but it's a white model and she loves this white model and she wishes she was this white model well Octavia's been socialized from a young age to believe that being black is ugly or being black is inferior 
Whereas white womanhood is what she's been told is the best and the most beautiful and the greatest. And so I think, you know, yeah, sometimes marginalized people express problematic things, don't they? I mean, when you've been socialized your whole life in something, in sexist thinking and racist thinking, um you're going to express those things sometimes just like a woman may express sexist thinking i mean i think it it's 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 not the best thing but it's it's natural or not natural but it's 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 to be expected you know that if octavia a black trans woman is being raised in a society that is racist and you know yeah, she's going to look at white women and say, God, I wish I was white, you know. And um, that doesn't make her bad because she thinks that. It makes her human. <laughs> it makes her part of a very racist culture that she does her best to navigate and to resist in, in ways that she can. But it's just like, um, you know, a larger woman may fantasize about being thin or um, a disabled woman may fantasize about being non-disabled, you know, because because your marginalized identity causes you so much pain in the world and because society makes it so difficult for you to exist that, yeah, you may have times where you fantasize about being in a more privileged status and a more powerful status than you are. So... I found that deeply relatable, you know, when the participants were talking about, oh, I wish I was rich, oh, I wish I was famous, oh, I wish I was this and that, and I was like, yeah, God, yeah, when you're poor, you fantasize about being rich, you know, and and um, because we live in a society that unfortunately socializes us that way. For me, the heart of the film are, are the participants, as I said, and their generosity with their story, their generosity with their dreams and desires, and their willingness to be open about their lives, you know. And um, the balls are, are fascinating to watch. And um, it's it's just, it's a really good film. And I, I did like it. You know, I did. And um, it's, it documents an important time in, in our history. And, and, um, I think it could be a source of strength for a lot of people too in the LGBT community, especially when we see that it's under attack again. So we see that, you know, communities of color, the queer community, they've been through a lot. They've been through a lot and they continue to survive and they continue to um, create communities and create family. and and um, find ways to resist and, and find ways to connect to other people. And that's really important to find connection in the world. And um, I also appreciate that the film um, did bring home the violence against trans women. Like, I don't know if, if we're really aware of it. I mean, I know we are those of us in the feminist community and who are on Twitter and, and Tumblr, you know, we certainly know about the stories of trans women being murdered, but 
it hadn't been brought home to me quite so viscerally until I watched this film and I saw these interviews with Venus and I just thought she was so sweet and and um and then to know that she was murdered it just it stopped me in my tracks and it haunts me I think it will always haunt me you know to see her on camera to see her alive to see her vibrant to see her having fun at the balls and posing and and looking beautiful and and then to know that somebody actually strangled her somebody thought that was okay to take her life away and um like how tragic like how horrific i mean i just think about her and to think that she suffered like that and was it was put through something like that and her life was extinguished that way it's so unimaginable and it's so just terrible you know like ugh, i can't even deal with it it still upsets me of course hooks was a bit upset about it because she felt like well it was just kind of put at the end and there was no real grieving for venus there was no real you know um sort of deep analysis of it and i, I can agree with that you know there wasn't you know uh, wasn't a lot of people talking about venus or about their grief um but at the same time i just think venus's story is so important and a part of me is glad that it was in the documentary and that her life was not forgotten that the film gives her a second life or another life it 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 tells her story to a certain point not all of her story of course but it does um, make her death and her life visible to other people which is so necessary in this time when violence against trans women violence against the queer community um, is is made invisible and it's something that we don't see on a daily basis and it's easy to forget it's easy for people to just pretend like it's not happening um when it is happening you know it happened in 1988 and it's happening happening now too where with high rates of murder of trans women especially trans women of color you know which is what venus was so that is such an important part of the film i do wish there you know they had maybe gone deeper into it but um it's it's so crucial that it is part of the film so it captures the whole film really captures a community that is invisible and tries to make it visible to the world to the public and show the richness and diversity and complexity of their lives so um it's on netflix now again if you're in the united states i don't know if it's on in other countries but it is streaming again and um, it's it's a very important film and it is one that if you're interested in feminism or you're interested in queer cinema or even you know documentary filmmaking it is a really important film to watch and you can come to your own conclusions about it you know and um, I'll try to put the bell hooks uh, essay in the in the description for this episode so that if you want to read it after you watch the film um, that you can definitely do that. I found it through the Wikipedia page for the film so I can definitely share it. And um, 
So that's all I wanted to say. I pretty much went through all my points that I had written down that I wanted to talk about about the film. So um, just a really, really important film when it comes to the LGBTQ community. And there are people that love this film, you know, and that it's helped them and and um, got them interested maybe in, in the drag in drag queens or um, it just it's it's a it's just an, a seminal film for a lot of people. Like I, I know that it was recommended to me a few times by different people involved in feminism and and, and um, women's and gender studies. So I'm really glad that I finally did watch it and that I did get to see it. So um, I definitely recommend it. Yeah. So it had it had some really powerful moments and some really important. Uh, things to say, I thought. So, I'll stop there. Um, thank you for listening. Uh, and I'll uh, hopefully keep doing more episodes. And I don't know what I'll talk about next, but I definitely wanted to talk about this film because it's so important. So, thank you again for listening, and I hope you have a great day. Bye. <laughs>